Hello and welcome to the March 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Um, we're going to jump right in this month, Art. No banter. This doesn't even count as banter. We're just going to go right to the story. You you know, let anything? me get a word in edgewise. <laughs> okay. okay, so let's go. We've got a foreign law case, a uh, uh, leading this month's issue of Law Notes. Um, we begin with the case of X and others v. Austria. I like this X, X character. This is this is the Austrian version That's... of the X Y Z affair. <laughs> gotcha. Um, specifically, on February nineteenth, two thousand thirteen, the European Court of Human Rights Grand Chamber ruled, and you're going to tell us what that is. Ruled that Austria could not deny second parent adoptions to members of same sex couples when it permitted such adoptions by heterosexual couples. Uh, in reaching its decision, the court ruled that such a ban violated the European Convention on Human Rights. So, a friendly ruling for us. So, before we go any further, what exactly is the European Convention on Human Rights? The European Convention on Human Rights is a treaty that dates back to the late 1940s. Uh, after World War II, several countries formed the Council of Europe, and they uh, generated this and other treaties. Uh, the European Convention on Human Rights was intended to address the serious human rights violations of uh, the Holocaust of World War II. And now there are 47 member states that are parties to the convention. Uh, the convention, in fact, uh, the council you have to ratify the convention to become part of the Council of Europe. This is much larger than the European Union, uh, which is the European Union is an economic and political community, but this is a treaty group. Uh, Russia is a member. For example. I noticed that in the, so, in, in the note. So uh, under the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, there is a particular protection for respect for private life. That's Article 8. And Article 14 deals with discrimination with respect to any of the rights. Well, and I want to give the listeners a sense of, of what Article 14 refers to. And essentially, Article 8 says, you know, ensures respect for one's private and family life, et cetera, et cetera. Including the right for men and women to marry. Hi. Okay, that's worth pointing specifically out. Specifically spelled out there. But then Article 14 says, um, you know, that any of those rights uh, shall be protected and secured without discrimination on any grounds, such as sex, race, color, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, association with a national minority, property, birth, or other status. Guess who we so, are. So where do we fit in? We are, in other, we are other status. <laughs> well, we in, obviously, I, I assume in the 40s, we were not intended to be other status. Is I don't that think right? we were thought of in okay. the 40s. Uh, <laughs> well, the point is, it says discrimination on any grounds such as. So the uh, classifications listed are merely exemplary. They're not exclusive. Is this a little um, statutory construction little, you're doing little, for us? A little statutory That was well done. Uh, and the court has, in more recent years, said that sexual orientation is naturally analogous to the other categories and belongs on the list. So it is well established under the European Convention that uh, discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation violates the, the and, uh, convention. Okay. And in terms of the grand chamber that you were asking about, uh, many very, very large courts will delegate their initial responsibility in a case into a smaller group panel of judges, and they do this on the European court. So there are smaller panels and there are larger panels, which is the So by panels, grand, the grand, it literally chamber. meant grand. Yeah, big, big. grand. Okay. Yeah. 
the very, as, as in French, Grand, you know. <laughs> so, so this is a big court. I think it was 17 judges or something like that. So uh, it's a broadly representative panel of drawn from the 47 uh, nations that are signatory. Oh, and you know, I didn't realize there that they actually they, had they, representatives they, 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 from different... I don't different know if they all designate judges, but the the number of judges on the European Court of Human Rights is enormous. Now, now let me ask you this. When we get into the facts of this, we'll talk about... This was a long journey for this couple, which we'll talk about, and um, starting in the Austrian local, local courts, if I have it right. So is it the case that by virtue of signatory states to this convention... One can exhaust. Does one have to start in their local court, yes. and then if they don't like, you, where... you you appeal from a decision of the highest court of your country or the highest appellate. Court. And that's a prerequisite to getting into that court. I believe so. Yes. Okay. I don't think you just go directly to the European. It'll be fun to skip over all that. It it would be, but if you can vindicate your rights in your national courts, why bother? That's right. But now turning to facts, the reason why I raise that is that I think here we have a couple that had, had had started the journey of trying to do the second parent adoption as early as 2006, I believe. Right. So it's a fairly long time now to get to this stage when you consider that the, right. the child's interests it's, are at stake during this and, time. And as I, uh, as I observe in the blog posting that I did on this case, by the time the case is finally resolved, because the result of this decision is to remand it back to the national courts for a determination of the best interest of the child. So uh, by the time this is done... The kid's going to have reached the age of majority, and it may become somewhat irrelevant. <laughs> and, and well, not totally irrelevant because you, we still have adult adoption. Well, and it'll affect other couples, presumably. Right. But so let's back up a little bit. So this is a um, this is a, this is two women, um, one of whom gave birth to to this child, so it's biologically related to the child. Well, right? and she uh, she had a uh, a man to whom she was not married, who she had the child with, uh, and he has recognized his paternity and is recognized as the legal father of the child. So the initial complication in this case is that the biological mother is living with a same-sex partner and the child, and there's a father in the picture. Who, who, who's not in a rush to, to disavow to, the, his right. parental rights. He, he did not want to give consent. Uh, so under Austrian law, uh, if there is a, uh, a proposed step-parent adoption, for example, uh, if uh, the mother remarries... Or if the mother has a boyfriend, because under Austrian law, it seems that different sex unmarried couples can do a second parent adoption. Uh, the uh, biological father has to consent, but a court can decide that his withholding of consent is not in the best interest of the child and can overrule the consent. So in this case, uh, the women were petitioning the court to allow the adoption over the objection of the biological father. And the court said, well, we don't even have to get to the issue of best interest, the Austrian court, because under Austrian law, a child may not have two legal parents of the same sex. And the adoption statutes, which specifically authorize a second parent adoption by a different sex uh, parent, uh, preclude, literally preclude, uh, two parents of the same sex. And so the Austrian court said, we don't have to get to the issue of interest, uh, the issue of best interest of the child. We don't have to get to the issue of whether the biological father is unreasonably withholding his consent because this is just impossible under Austrian law. And they raised the uh, issue. They said, well, what about the Austrian Constitution, which guarantees equal protection of the laws? And the court said, well, we don't think it's the same thing. We think that the state has a legitimate interest in seeing that a child is raised by a different sex couple. Unfortunately, no American court would ever reach that conclusion. 
It's, it's a shame that the microphone can't capture the deadpan look on your face, Brad. No, well, you know, we, no, we this is a problem we run into. Yeah, I mean, it's there's echoes of uh, echoes of a lot of obviously Many what we the see same in, issues in the play States. out exactly as right. as you one might expect. But so, so I want to appeal to the Oh, I, I was going to take us to the next part. Okay, I was going to move us along. Take us to the next step. Okay, the next step, and it's going to be a question for you. So, the they get to the the. The Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights. And the court here, though, they don't rule, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't rule that the Austrian ban here is a per se violation of the Convention on Human Rights, um, European Convention on Human Rights. Rather, they say that the government in this case has not been able to show that it's necessary for the protection of the child's best interests right. or that there's any other evidence indicating that, for instance, same children of same-sex couples do worse than children of opposite-sex well, couples. Well, the problem is the European Convention on Human Rights works a bit differently from the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it uh, provides that uh, the discrimination prohibited in Article 14 uh, is not so strictly applied as the equal protection requirement in the U.S. Constitution in the 14th and 5th Amendments, uh, that states have a margin of appreciation within which, if they have decent justifications for making distinctions based on these uh, enumerated categories or sexual orientation, an unenumerated category but recognized one, uh, the, the court may decide that their action is within the margin of appreciation. Is it sort of a rational basis type review, to it's, put it in our terms? It's or? sort of like rational. I think it has a little more bite than traditional rational basis. But uh, the state has to have a legitimate reason. And the state here is arguing, uh, well, it's better for children to be raised in traditional families. And the court, and this is, I think, the important thing, uh, really, about this decision, because this is a decision that has a binding effect on 47 countries in, in uh, the Council of Europe. Uh, the court says... There is no solid evidence here to show that children are better off being raised by different sex couples. And, and it was, I was struck by, and the court seems to be quite comfortable with the idea of saying there's, there, there's, there's no scientific evidence that that's the case, to, to sort of right. brush away, like put it, to, we bring us back to courts in America, which sometimes seem to have well, trouble it's, rejecting it's just, the junk uh, science. They say it's just common sense. It's just common <laughs> sense. Centuries and centuries and centuries of civilization prove that all of these enormously well-adjusted people raised by different sex couples. You know. <laughs> Talk about the deadpan. Yes, right? So, Do you know a poorly adjusted child of opposite sex couples? Yeah. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Benito Mussolini. Yeah. I didn't ex- there's nothing yeah. funny about that. Nothing funny about that. Okay. Right. I didn't expect you to bring in Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. Into this. Well, they Although were, it's appropriate. As far as that. I know, yeah. uh, they were raised by different sex couples. That's probably yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I, don't think, I don't think Hitler was going around singing about his lesbian mom. I, I can't get you <laughs> okay. off the Hitler thing. Okay. Can we move on? We can move on. Okay. No, right. I, I do want... You started to... I think you already gave one answer for it about its its scope, the, the scope of the decision. But, you know, it, it was striking to me that in a month where... There were some big developments that we'll get to uh, in the latest round of DOMA, Prop 8, Obama administration briefs on Prop, Prop 8 in the Supreme Court. You led this issue with this story, and I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on why. I, I know you talked about the scope of it, why you think this is such an important decision. Well, because this is an issue that's being argued all over the world. Uh, whether states have a legitimate interest in denying marriage to same-sex couples, this is a policy debate that's going on now in Australia, it's going on in New Zealand, several countries in South America, several states around the United States. It's a pervasive world issue. Hong Kong, you know, all kinds of places Mm -hmm. where they're debating about legal recognition for same-sex couples and parental relationship between same-sex couples and children. 
Uh, and I thought, here is a major international body uh, that is authorized to make decisions on human rights on behalf of 47 nations. That that's a pretty big deal. Uh, even though in some ways it's a very limited decision, it says it violates equality principles under the European Convention for Austria to allow unmarried different sex couples to do a second parent adoption and not unmarried. Right, so if you made the distinction all based on un yeah. not being married right. for all folks, right. it would, if they made presumably it would survive. Right. If they made a distinction between married and unmarried because the state of the law on marriage under the European Convention is unsettled at this point. Uh, what happens is that the, the court looks for an emerging consensus among the member states. And the number of states under the convention who allow same-sex marriage is still relatively small. There are a fair number of, of countries that have the equivalent of civil unions, registered partnerships. England and France seem to be on the verge of enacting same-sex marriage, which will be huge in terms of moving the consensus in Europe. But actually, Austria had a case in the European Court within the past few years where they turned down the claim that a same-sex couple was entitled to marry. They said Austria has passed a civil union law, which recently went into effect. As of now, that's enough under the European consensus of how to deal with this. So this is a court that explicitly looks at political trends. And the U.S. Supreme Court probably responds to political trends but doesn't explicitly uh, except in a few very narrow areas. Death penalty, you certainly Death penalty see that. is yeah. one. But, but generally, in applying equal protection, the court doesn't uh, necessarily, although I guess this is one of the things that really disturbed the dissenters in Lawrence versus Texas, that Justice Kennedy said, well, you know, recent developments in due process and privacy and things of like that are relevant in deciding what our history and traditions are evolving towards. So the living constitution theory. Which, which I like. It's and better you, to have a living constitution. And you've heard the recently Justice Scalia has declared that the Constitution is dead. In fact, I he, he said for emphasis, dead, dead, dead. What? He said, our Constitution is not a living document. Oh, oh okay. Yes. Reiterated the dead. It is dead. dead. Um, on that note, um, no, it's not exactly on the note, but it is about how a Scalia might respond. It's actually the rest of the court. I think we know how it's Scalia would respond. I'm going to ask you a question I think I know the answer to, but... I take it the U.S. Supreme Court, seeing this kind of court rule this way, matters how much? It matters, not at all? It matters to some of the justices and not to others. Uh, Justice Kennedy, in his decision in Lawrence, cited a ruling by the European Court of Human Rights in a case involving sodomy laws in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So to some of the justices, it makes a difference what the international body of judges is thinking about things. And I think it's also important to note that the high courts of many other countries cite European uh, Court of Human Rights decisions. The South Africa Supreme Court cited the European Court of Human Rights when they struck down the sodomy law in South Africa. Uh, the Canadian Supreme Court looked to the European Court of Human Rights on some gay rights issues that they decided. So uh, this is a, a decision that has binding effect within the 47 countries of Europe, but also has persuasive effect in many other parts of the world. We're going to leave it there. Art, that's actually, that's, you always give great explanations, but that's a great explanation of why this case uh, matters a lot and potentially may matter a lot more. We're going to take a short break, and as we mentioned, we are going to return to discuss some uh, developments we've been discussing a lot, as you might expect on this podcast, the latest DOMA slash Prop 8 slash Obama administration activity with respect to upcoming arguments in the United States Supreme Court. Amazing. Stay with us. 
We are back uh, discussing some upcoming arguments in the United States Supreme Court. March 26th, March 27th, Prop 8 and DOMA will have their day in the United States Supreme Court, as I mentioned. And Art, um, why don't we start with a little bit of um, where we are, what's going on there? Where we are, well, the in, within the past month, which is covered by the, the March issue of Law Notes, we had amicus briefs being filed. And, One or two, I think you mentioned. Uh, 40 or 50. <laughs> I mean, the deluge of, of amicus briefs uh, filed during February, uh, including, of course, most significantly for many people, the uh, Solicitor General filed an amicus brief on behalf of the United States government in the Prop 8 case. And uh, the United States government is not a party in the Prop 8 case. That's the case in which the American Foundation for Equal Rights is challenging California Prop 8, it's whether Prop 8 violates the 14th Amendment. The other case, the DOMA case, is whether Section 3 of DOMA, which has the definition, federal definition of marriage excluding same-sex couples, uh, that arises under the Fifth Amendment. But they're both equal protection cases. And the same issue is at the heart of both cases. What is the level of judicial review for claims of sexual orientation discrimination under the U.S. Constitution? And the Solicitor General... Uh, the president, the White House, was under intense political pressure to file an amicus brief in this case and tell the court that the federal government thinks that Proposition 8 is unconstitutional. The question is, on what theory? And the Justice Department's theory is this is a heightened scrutiny case. They say that if you check off the various factors the Supreme Court looks at to decide whether a particular classification of uh, discrimination is subject to heightened scrutiny are all met in uh, case of sexual orientation discrimination. So the Solicitor General, and I think this is one of the motivating factors, certainly in the statement of interest of the amicus, which has to be at the beginning of any amicus brief, you know, why is this non-party intervening in this case? He says, look, the issue of level of review is in both cases. And we think it's important that the court hear our arguments as to the level of review in both cases. Uh, and also our arguments as to why the court should strike down Prop 8, uh, because uh, the parties have their arguments, the various amici have their arguments. I can't imagine there's any single person in the world that's going to read all these amicus briefs. I certainly haven't. I mean, I've skimmed through some of them. Uh, the justices aren't going to read them. The clerks are going to summarize them. Uh, and uh, the summary will probably be so long that the justices aren't going to read them. Who knows? <laughs> but... You know, there's a lot of going on record in amicus briefs that this organization supports this you, point. You, you, in your note, we'll get to it. Yeah. You, you, in one, one of your notes, you sort of bemoan the idea that every organization yeah. feels like they need Too to go many. on record with their own brief yeah. as opposed to joining yeah, an they, existing they, one. There, were, there are some joint briefs, uh, including one uh, involving several hundred members of Congress in the DOMA case. Uh, but the Justice Department's amicus brief is special here. Uh, first off, the Solicitor General usually carries some extra weight with the court, more than a private party because, after all, the Solicitor General is representing the United States government. So the Solicitor General only files an amicus brief in a case if they think there are important federal government interests implicated in the decision of that case. Uh, and so they say, we think the court should be consistent in its dealing with the heightened scrutiny issues between the two cases. And, and is there any wrinkle there with, with the DOMA case because of the clear, I mean, the whole argument is about how they federalized what was once a state, right. a there's state a, issue. So it, there's a federalism. Yeah, that that seems more easy. What's on the Prop 8 side, the argument, uh, besides the scrutiny part, is that, is it in ensuring that there's some sort of uniformity in 
you know, not not winding up treating a California marriage. What, what's the federal interest in the in the California Prop 8 case besides having an interest in making sure that the same level of review that well, applies in Prop 8 will apply in DOMA? The other interest that the, the Solicitor General identifies is that the policy arguments that the defenders of Prop 8 are making are very similar to the policy arguments that the defenders of DOMA are making. And so, once again, they see an interest in having the court have their arguments, the government's arguments, as to why those justifications are inadequate. But in a world where, sorry to pause on this point, maybe it's not worth pausing on, but if DOMA wasn't at issue, what would be the federal interest in maybe? There might not be a federal interest uh, in that point. It would be more of a political interest Mm -hmm. by the president uh, in vindicating the position that he's been evolving into. You Uh, always mock the evolution that happened. It, it happened, but the point is it's continuing because <laughs> last spring during the presidential election, he's, he's becoming highly. Involved. He said he was personally in favor of same-sex marriage, but that it was something that the states should mm-hmm. sort out. Uh, now he's come to the point of uh, authorizing the filing of an amicus brief that says, on behalf of the federal government, that it violates the Fifth Amendment for the state of California to pass a state constitutional amendment excluding same-sex couples from marriage. But but only one step short yeah. of saying that no state right. Can so do it. Uh, I've seen different comment yeah. commentaries on yeah. what exactly How that brief far is did this saying. Brief go? Exactly. Well, what this brief does, it's very lawyerly brief. It's a very subtly written brief, very nuanced. It says, let's look at the enactment of Proposition Eight. Let's look at the circumstances in which it was enacted. Let's take heightened scrutiny to examine those circumstances. It was enacted in response to a California Supreme Court decision that authorized same-sex marriage. And so the, the question before the court, and this is very much like the Ninth Circuit's analysis in its decision in this case, is uh, does it substantially advance an important governmental interest to take away the right to marry from same-sex couples when at the same time you are leaving in place a domestic partnership law in California that gives them all the state law rights and benefits of marriage. It says, let's look at the arguments that the defenders of Prop 8 are making now in the court. All of those arguments relate to policy issues that Prop 8 doesn't really affect. That is, under California law, same-sex couples who are registered domestic partners have all the parental rights. Everything but the word marriage. Adoption. They have everything but the word marriage in terms of the relationship with their kids, their relationships to each other. So how does it advance this responsible procreation theory that the defenders of Prop 8 are putting forward? It has nothing to do with that because under California law, same-sex couples already have all the rights of marriage with respect to kids. You're arguing this with such kids. precise logic. It's, it's sort of yes. funny that, that, that I would think so that that would matter <laughs> to, logic, to the supporters of Prop 8. Yeah, well, does logic matter to the Supreme Court? That's the issue for us. Well, you well know, that's actually... If you can count to five, you can win in the Supreme well, Court, as Justice Brown how many people? How many people and it so this apply brief, to? You know, We're talking read, over each other. I'm talking yes. over you. You, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out. Okay. Continue on, but I have a I have a I have a quote right. I want to read to you in a second. You read through all these briefs and you know who they're aimed at. Right. They're all aimed at Justice Kennedy. I mean, he's the target, because there is a widespread assumption that uh, the four more moderate justices on the court, appointed by uh, President Clinton and President Obama, are likely to find DOMA Section Three unconstitutional. Are likely to find Prop Eight unconstitutional, uh, and there is a widespread belief that you will never find 
Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, or Justice Alito were voting for gay rights under any circumstances. You, you did, though. You point out that someone, um, I don't know. People seem to think Chief Justice yeah, Roberts that, might uh, be, In the Prop 8 case, they unearthed the quote from... From, from an old law review article. Exactly, right? about standing and sort standing. of the idea of not allowing just anyone uh, to be able to run into court to Well, this exercise. goes back to a point I made in a previous podcast, I think, that there's always the possibility in this case that there'll be no majority on the merits, uh, that the court will divide over the issue of standing, and some justices will say there's no standing, so we shouldn't decide the merits, and some will say there is standing, and we think that uh, Prop 8 is unconstitutional, and some may say we do find standing in Prop 8 is constitutional. And so then, you know, we'll have to figure out what the bottom line is by adding together disparate concurring opinions or a plurality of It makes for a good law school. Um, it will make for a very good class. Class discussion. Right. I, I want to read you a quote of your own. I do this from okay. time to time and yeah. ask you to comment on it. And it, it's with respect to the, the brief submitted on behalf of Edie Windsor, who at the end of the day is obviously at the heart of the matter with respect to Dome and the case. And you you write, this may have to do with all the other briefs that are in the mix too, but you write, Windsor's merits brief gives a human dimension to a case that could easily devolve into an abstract proposition at the highest appellate level. Say more about that. Well, if you read that brief, that brief gives you a very well-written, almost journalistic or or novelistic uh, account of Edie Windsor's life and her partnership with B.S. Fire and the struggles over the years with illness and with having to stay in the closet because of the jobs that they had. Uh, I think it, it, as I say, it gives a human dimension. Uh, When these cases get to the Supreme Court, they tend to get refined down to the doctrinal issues, and the people get overlooked. I mean, I went to the oral argument of uh, Bowers versus Hardwick way back in 1986. Did not know that, Art. And uh, there was very little said about the people involved. And people didn't seem to figure very heavily in that oral argument. It was all about history and tradition and morality and things of that sort, but very little focus on the impact on people. And to me, this was a distinguishing factor of the decision in Lawrence versus Texas. Justice Kennedy dwelt on the impact on people of sodomy laws. And I think there was a very well-organized campaign of amicus briefs to personalize the issue for him in, in many ways. And I think in this case, the, uh, the brief that was filed on behalf of Edie Windsor does that brilliantly. It, uh, it brings before the court the human cost of the federal government refusing to recognize valid same-sex marriages. I'm going to leave it there. I was going to potentially do our typical practice of talking about Paul Clement, but you know, I think We've I think he's him. occupied enough of our time. Well, he, his brief was last month. So yeah, we discussed it. We discussed it already, and let's move on from he him. He does I'm, have to file a reply. Brief. Yeah, no, but I, I want to leave it on the note that you just said about okay. Edie Windsor and the fabulous brief written on her behalf. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a case out of Ohio. Concerning the termination of a lesbian Catholic school teacher who was fired after becoming pregnant through donor insemination. Stay with us. So we're back talking about the case of Diaz v. Archdiocese of Cincinnati, where a federal judge in Cincinnati has ruled against the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and gra- that's a lot of Cincinnatis, and granted a lesbian Catholic school teacher the right to a trial after she was fired for becoming pregnant via donor insemination. She brought a couple of claims, including a discrimination claim. So before we go any 
further. This teacher, uh, her background presents a well, bit of a... Let's, uh, let's make it clear that she isn't a teacher. She's been fired. Well, she wasn't a teacher. She was a computer, computer technology coordinator, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, okay, no, that's fair. I, I, I guess I was focused on the fact that she wasn't a minister, which makes a big right. difference, too. But, but a I, teacher in she's a Catholic not a school teacher. might be considered a minister. So what do we want to call her, an instructor? She, uh, computer technology coordinator. Can I have something short so I can get through the whole... Yeah, thing? she's the tech person. The tech Catholic, person. She's the tech person no, for two parochial well, schools I chose, in Cincinnati. I chose you know? the term teacher because it was shorthand. Okay, yeah. I'm going to call her a... Uh, no, but this makes a difference. Instructor. Okay. This, this makes a big difference because... You destroyed uh, my lead-in, which was hilarious. Because she's not going to be instructing people about Catholic theology. Correct. And, she, and she's not a minister. And she's which not is a kind minister. of the same. Well, that's the same thing. Can I so, go through my perfect storm? Go through your perfect storm. So she is, this tech person, in some ways, is a perfect storm. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> in terms Calm of the, down, Brad. <laughs> let's get to the case. <laughs> this is such a, this is ridiculous. Well, this is a ridiculous case. All right, so. No, no, but in, in terms of the challenges she presents to, quote, unquote, official Roman Catholic church doctrine. And let's review it for a second. Help me out. She's lesbian. She's unmarried. She's in a long-term same-sex relationship. She's become pregnant through donor insemination. And on that front, they actually assumed that she had been having premarital sexual intercourse, which is also a big no-no. Well, so there's a see, lot going see, on here. See, here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem Ms. Diaz had. All right. Oh, we could call her by her name. We can call Thank her by her name. Ms. Diaz. Ms. Diaz. So, uh, Krista Diaz. No, it's so, okay. So, Ms. Diaz uh, is hired to be the computer tech person for uh, these two parochial schools. And uh, she knows, you know, you can't be an out lesbian and get hired for that kind of thing by that employer. So she's in the closet at work. Uh, she, they don't know that she's lesbian. They don't know she has a partner. Keeping it quiet because her contract has a morals clause. If you get hired to teach in a Catholic school, you have to sign a contract saying you will not engage in conduct that, conduct that violates the tenets of the Catholic faith. Uh, all right, so she gets pregnant. She tells her principal in one of the schools. And the principal says, well, you're not married, are you? Well, I better check with upstairs to see whether, you know, <laughs> upstairs being you know the, the archdiocese, you know, <laughs> are we, do we have a problem here? Uh, and, you know, because we, we don't allow premarital sex in Catholicism. So the assumption immediately is says, that she's had premarital sex. Right. They, they assume she had premarital sex. She says, oh, no. She says, I was, I became pregnant through artificial insemination is the way, you know, the term is used. I use the term donor insemination. Either way, she said, I got pregnant without sex. Well, does the Catholic Church like people getting pregnant without sex? No, they like people getting pregnant with sex, but only in marriage. So uh, the response of, uh, of the school is, no way, no way, you're out of here. So she filed suit for breach of contract. And she filed suit for employment discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which forbids discrimination on the basis of pregnancy or childbirth, among other things. Uh, it's called the Pregnancy Discrimination Amendment, uh, which was passed to clarify that early in the history of Title VII when the Supreme Court said that discrimination against pregnant women is not sex discrimination because some women don't get pregnant. So it's discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. And Congress came back and said, that is bizarre. Discrimination against pregnant people who, by definition, are only women is sex discrimination. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, this was a big deal. In fact, Justice Ginsburg, I think, was very active in the move to pass the Pregnancy Discrimination Amendment back when she was in practice. So, uh, so she's got these two claims going on in this case. Uh, so we get to discovery. And what comes out in discovery? She's a lesbian, living with the same-sex partner. 
And so the uh, archdiocese moves to dismiss the breach of contract claim on the ground that she violated the morals clause. And there's and, so and she has unclean, unclean hands, which is so like using that argument here, using that term there. Yeah. Is, it's, I mean, didn't she by know? By being in a committed long-term right. relationship and, with and didn't she know that partner? as a lesbian, the church considered her to be intrinsically disordered? You know. Well, you know, we're, some of this is, this is all very serious. I mean, we joke sometimes because yeah. presumably, no, right, presumably people would enjoy because, occasionally hearing us right. banter. But There are uh, lots of gay people who work in the Catholic that, Church. That's what I wanted yes. to get to, is it because we've Catholic seen... hospitals, we, Catholic nursing homes, Catholic schools. We've seen, uh, you've seen a ton, I'm sure. Yeah. We've, I've certainly discussed well, with quite you a few. other cases like this. And it does, it is worth pointing out again that so many members of our community who find themselves in a conflicted situation in the sense that they have faith and uh, perhaps they're a religious person or perhaps they just need a job working at a particular place and yet they it's sort of reminiscent of serving in the military, yeah. right? Not if, openly. If, if you happen to be Catholic and a social worker, Catholic Charities is where you want to work in the mm-hmm. York metro area. You know, it's uh, adoption agencies. It's a whole range of uh, activities where people in particular professions find employment opportunities. Well, and it's it's such an open secret that many of these places are right. are populated by as the normal the normal as in the average popul- larger population populated by people who are both gay and not gay. Right. That it's it's interesting that this comes up in the context of well, she became pregnant. And this was one of her arguments, right, is that you're sort of you're enforcing the the morals clause discriminately in the sense that the only way to apply it with respect to sort of premarital sex based on the way you gather evidence is only a woman woman could be noticed for that because only a woman gets pregnant. And during discovery, they turned up a former male employee of the archdiocese uh, who had gotten his girlfriend pregnant outside of marriage, wasn't discharged. And they, the judge said, in order to prove discrimination based on sex here, you have to show a comparator of the other sex who's treated differently. That's usually under Title VII. Uh, you, you have to show that a man uh, in, a, in an analogous situation would be treated differently. So they thought, at least this is her argument, they thought she engaged in premarital sex, and that was why they initially discharged her. I mean, the principal came back and said, well, they said if you get pregnant outside of marriage... You know, we, we can't have it here. And she said, oh, I didn't have sex. You know, this is uh, insemination. Uh, it's not sex. And she said it didn't matter. It's, it's hard to believe at that point that she thought that for real that that fact would Make a difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at that stage. Uh, especially when you realize that the Catholic Church is opposed to donor insemination mm-hmm. as a procedure. Uh, but... You know, she's not a theologian, and that's the other point here. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. The court I, talks about the ministerial exemption. Yeah, and I have to say, I I mean, I, now that I hear it, it makes sense that there may be this thing that exists, but I was not aware of this thing called the ministerial exception, and I guess I have a question for you about also well, the scope of it, really, and how is, far it can is, go. This is actually a big deal, because until last year, we didn't have Supreme Court authority on this, but then there was a case by the Supreme Court, the Hosanna-Tabor case, which, for the first time, the Supreme Court approved this doctrine of ministerial exemption, which had been developed in the lower federal courts, they said as a matter of the First Amendment free exercise of religion, uh, religious organizations have to have a limited exemption from complying with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, And that exemption extends to the selection and employment of people whose job is somewhere within the religious mission of the employer. 
it's not just ministers. It's any employee who uh, has a function uh, with respect to, for example, uh, the, the director of the church choir. Uh, and in to fact, one of the earliest First Amendment uh, defense cases involving sexual orientation was a case from San Francisco in the 1970s, I believe, of a gay church organist who was fired by a Presbyterian well, church. I must say, I'm, I'm in my limited experience meeting the leaders of church choirs and church many organs, of many of them are gay. And if their church objects to that, mm. they can be fired. But and, they know many of them, <laughs> this and, is the tension, And the First right? Amendment would protect the church's yeah. right to fire them as a free exercise thing. So the exact scope of the ministerial exemption is a bit fuzzy. It's very fact-oriented. It depends on the case. Uh, the Hosanna Tabor case involved a, uh, a teacher in a school who wasn't hired specifically as a religious teacher, but she had to have some kind of ordination in order to hold the position. So the school regarded her as being a minister. And, and here we have, I, I believe it was this case that they argue that she's a role model, a Catholic yeah. role model. And, the, and Judge Spiegel didn't go for it. This is District Judge Arthur Spiegel, uh, who uh, who said, well, you know, we went with the role model theory. Everyone who worked right. in a Catholic there school would be, would be no It wouldn't be an exception. Re regardless of whether they had anything to do with teaching religion. And he mm -hmm. said, this person is the AV person, the tech person, you know, the computer person, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he didn't go for that ministerial exemption. Uh, so he said, what remains to be done in this case is to have some fact-finding as to the real reason why they discharged her. You know? uh, and if the reason was because she became pregnant, then we've got a problem under the PDA. Interesting. All right, so where's... So it's interesting. And, and uh, just a side note on Judge Spiegel. Uh, judge Spiegel was the district judge who ruled way back in the 1980s that a Cincinnati charter amendment that banned any protection for gay people was unconstitutional. He was reversed by the Sixth Circuit, but... Hey, so he has know, a history with... He has um, a history with this. Interesting. Uh, good stuff. Actually, it's the 1990s. Okay. It, was, it was right around the time of Romer, actually. Uh, good note. Um, we're going to leave it there. When we come back, we're going to come back with Art Leonard's of note for this month's issue. Um, so stay with us, and we'll close out the podcast with that. Art, what do you have of note? Well, we have a decision, uh, unpublished decision from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, it came out on February 11th in the case of Lambie versus American Family Mutual Insurance Company. Mr. Lambie, who's HIV positive, managed to infect a sexual partner. His sexual partner sued him. Mr. Lambie said to his insurance company, you are supposed to insure me against personal liability. Defend me. <laughs> and the insurance company said, no way, Mr. Mr. Lambie, no way, Brent. Uh, and uh, he, so he sued the insurance company. Uh, normally, under an insurance contract, if, if the claim is arguably covered, they're supposed to provide a defense. But the court said, no, there's no way this is covered. The policy has a specific exemption, which we think applies here. Uh, so, guys, read your insurance policy. <laughs> See what's covered, what's not covered, before you waste a lot of time and money suing your insurance company to defend you. And, and it could be, um, that was a moment for you to plug just the idea of... Uh... But, know, but don't do be have, unsafe because you think right. you have an insurance policy. They might right. defend a, a lawsuit. Against. Right, right. That's definitely, so definitely that's the, the moral of the uh, of the case. All right, that's a short of note. Thank you. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, New York or a Law Note subscriber by visiting us at 
le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can always be found in iTunes, online, or at legal.podbean.com. And if you're listening in iTunes, Art said I shouldn't shamelessly do this, but please take a moment to give us five stars. It will push us up in the iTunes store. And again, just to reiterate, don't give us no stars or one star. If you're going to give us stars, make it a good one. All right, that's it. Follow Legal on Twitter at legal.org or find us on Facebook. I'm, like, messing up the end. Do you want to go back and redo it? No, we can't. That's it. That's all the time we have.